Xi Jinping's chief diplomat, mysteriously missing from the political scene for weeks. Rumors are rife over his vanishing act. Was it due to health concerns, extramarital affairs, or falling out of political favor? Taiwan reporting record number of Chinese warships circling the island. What's driving Beijing's military flex? A top American institute is under investigation about its partnership with China. Projects might share cutting-edge technologies in military use. An infamous Chinese fast fashion brand taken back to court for stealing designs. But this time, it's under a law for organized crime. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Amid the diplomatic bustle in China's capital, one unusual thing has stood out. For three full weeks now, Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gan, a close aide to Xi Jinping, has been missing from the public eye. Qin was last seen in Beijing on June 25th when he hosted officials from Sri Lanka, Vietnam and Russia. That followed the high-stakes meeting with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Since then, Qing has dropped out of sight, absent from this month's visits by U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Climate Envoy John Kerry. Last week, China's top diplomat Wang Yi took Qing's place and attended a gathering of Southeast Asian member states in Indonesia. Beijing's foreign ministry explained that Qing Gan couldn't make the trip due to health reasons, but the statement was later left out of the briefing's official transcript. When asked again on Monday about Qing's prolonged absence, a spokesperson said there was no information to provide. Meanwhile, discussions about his disappearance have come under scrutiny. American scholar Phil Cunningham tweeted that in one of his commentaries, remarks about Qing's potential political disfavor were scrubbed in the South China Morning Post, a pro-Beijing newspaper based in Hong Kong. Analysts flag the Chinese Communist Party's habitual secrecy and information opacity, calling it mind-boggling. But on the other hand, speculation is swirling. Hong Kong's pro-China newspaper Xingdao Daily claimed that Qing vanished from the public eye because of a COVID-19 infection, while posts on social media linked Qing's disappearance to an extramarital affair. His alleged secret girlfriend, a Beijing-backed media anchor, was a suspected double agent. The woman recently gave birth to an illegitimate child with the surname Qing. Others suggested that Qing Gan was embroiled in the downfall of a senior military official whose son allegedly leaked CCP intel while studying in the U.S. That occurred during Qing's term as China's ambassador to the United States. Similar scenarios have occurred involving other CCP officials. It's been seen as part of Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign. Most of them resurfaced later. Xi himself was out of the public eye for two weeks, shortly before he was named China's top leader in 2012. The world of fast fashion headed into the courtroom. Designers Krista Perry, Larissa Martinez and Jay Barron are slapping Chinese brand Xi'an with a lawsuit, accusing the company of stealing their designs. The suit alleges Xi'an has grown rich by committing individual infringements over and over again, knowingly reproducing artwork from independent artists as part of its business model. But pinning down Xi'an on copyright violations will be no easy task, largely due to how the brand runs its operation. Unlike traditional retailers, experts liken Xi'an to a technology company. Instead of employing human designers to avoid copyright issues, the lawsuit says Xi'an automates that process, using algorithms to find and select small batches of designs that it predicts will quickly sell out. 
Plus, Xi'an isn't just a single entity. It functions as a mass of smaller operations, many of which have short lifespans and are said to be quickly replaced. That makes it hard to pin down who's to blame for any alleged design theft. To handle that, here's where the case gets interesting. The lawsuit was brought under a racketeering law known as RICO, which targets organized crime on top of intellectual property theft. The giant has come under fire from a number of copyright lawsuits already, so far skirting rulings and opting to settle some cases with others still pending. That's alongside other accusations ranging from environmental damage to using materials sourced from forced labor. Valued at roughly $66 billion, Sheehan says it takes all claims of infringement seriously and takes swift action when complaints are raised by design owners, adding it will vigorously defend itself from claims it deems are without merit. Record-breaking crowds of warships circling waters near Taiwan. The whopping 16 Chinese vessels approaching the island in a single day. That figure tops the previous high of 14 back in August. Standing as Beijing's reaction to then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Analysts say the activity carries several implications. None of them positive for Taiwan or regional stability. Here are the details. China's military is serving up a show of force near Taiwan. Last week, 38 aircraft were detected around the island, followed by 33 on Thursday and 30 on Friday. During those three days, 73 Chinese aircraft either crossed the Taiwan Strait's median line, an unofficial barrier between the island and mainland China, or entered Taiwan's air defense identification zone. But what's driving the surge? Experts say the reason is threefold. First, intimidation, aimed at wearing down the Taiwanese people's mental strength and ability to resist a possible takeover. Second, when Taiwan's military springs into action to respond, it takes a toll on defense systems and equipment. That creates a major maintenance headache and could even lead to a dip in Taiwan's defense readiness. Finally, the operations help Beijing prepare for the big moment, a possible Chinese invasion of Taiwan. The Chinese regime claims Taiwan is its own territory, despite never having ruled the island. It has vowed to annex Taiwan by force if necessary. Chinese state media hailed the naval activity on Sunday, saying the record number of vessels demonstrated the Chinese military's ability to encircle the island. The increased military pressure also comes as Taiwan gears up for its presidential election in January. A top candidate already riled Beijing in recent days by announcing he'd stop by the U.S. during a trip to Paraguay. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has warned China not to use the travel plan, quote, as a pretext for provocative actions. This is very routine given the distances traveled uh, to, have a, to have a transit point. Ten vice presidents from Taiwan have uh, transited over the past couple of decades. Paraguay is the last country in South America to still hold official relations with Taiwan. The country's incoming president recently opened up on why it makes more sense for the country not to shift to Beijing. We would love to do more trade with PRC, uh, but we are also looking to have the market of the U.S. open. Having a closer collaboration with Taiwan put us closer on a path to develop an industrial sector that we will have it if we have our relation with China. Very happy. Santiago Peña says his country has an agriculture-based economy and needs to move up in the value chain. 
adding that siding with Taiwan is the best choice for reaching that goal. UC Berkeley, a dream university for students around the world. Now the top American university is getting dragged into controversy over ties to China. U.S. lawmakers are investigating the institute's partnership with several Chinese entities, warning the school could help China gain cutting-edge technology used in areas like economics, high-tech R&D, and even military development. Many of the school's sponsors hold deep connections with the Chinese regime, such as China's National University of Defense Technology, Chinese telecom firm Huawei, and drone maker DJI. Worth noting, many of these entities are facing sanctions from the U.S. government over national security threats. In a letter from a U.S. House committee to UC Berkeley last week, lawmakers questioned the school about its academic collaboration with a top Chinese university spanning almost 10 years. That joint research includes subjects like advanced semiconductors and imaging technology for drawing maps and developing self-driving cars. China's access to its faculty members was also outlined as a concern. The letter warned these government-funded studies help U.S. military development, calling it problematic if Beijing gets its hands on them. Though the school says that its research are published in academic journals for public viewing, meaning China would not get additional benefits. UC Berkeley has been asked to provide extensive information about the interactions with China by the end of this month. Back from her recent trip to Beijing, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen stated she's eager to work with China on areas of mutual interest, covering debt restructuring for poorer countries and other challenges. Here's what she said. There's much more work to do, but I believe this trip was an important start. I'm eager to build on the groundwork that we laid in Beijing to mobilize further action. Yellen spoke on Sunday ahead of the G20 meeting in India. She said her visit to China set up better footing for relations between the two world powers. Last week's visit served as a step forward in putting our relationship on a sure footing and establishing a resilient and productive channel of communication. Yellen also laid out the next steps for the World Bank and other multilateral development banks. As for the ongoing war in Ukraine, Yellen added that Washington will continue to cut off Russia's access to relevant weapons and technologies. An unusual new weapon popping up within a formal military unit. The Chinese military has seemingly adapted its arms lineup, with sharpened steel tubes becoming the newest tactic against Indian soldiers. A dispute over the nation's shared border has persisted for years, with both sides taking casualties during a 2020 skirmish. To avoid upgrading that conflict to a war, China and India are banned from using firearms in these incidents. Instead, troops wield more primitive weapons, steel pipes with sharpened tips. They're said to be lightweight and used in both defense and offense. A Chinese military media reported that the tubes are common among Chinese border troops and can allegedly be thrown like javelins. China ceding the throne as the world's most populous nation, with neighboring India pulling ahead. What brought about the epoch shift and how will it impact the economy? Experts weighed in. For over half a century, China boasted the world's largest population. That status is fading. According to UN projections, India's population outnumbers China's by almost 3 million as of mid-year 2023. 
Last year, China saw its first population drop in decades, propelled by a steep fall in birth rates. As housing prices and the cost of living skyrocket, young adults say starting a family is just too expensive. Demographer Yi Fuxian named three challenges facing China's population crisis. On the material level, people can't afford to raise children. On the mental level, people are unwilling to have children. Thirdly, on the physical level, infertility rises and some people can't have children. Fewer children heralds a drain on domestic demand and labor, something China's economy is heavily dependent on. And experts say Beijing's lift on the infamous one-child policy came far too late. China's economic growth will continue to decline. By around 2031 to 2035, all of China's demographic figures will be worse than those of the U.S. China's economic growth will also start to be lower than the U.S. from the year 2031 to 2035. Aging poses another concern. An expert likened China's demographic structure to that of Japan in the mid-1990s. The island country is home to the oldest population in Asia. There are a lot of similarities between China today and Japan 25 years ago uh, in terms of the demographics, in terms of the asset bubble bursting. Um, so, you, know, you could see China effectively stuck at the zero bound and, and uh, you know, see policy become impotent. Turning to India, the key to the country's population boom lies in fertility. On average, each Indian woman bears two children today, compared to the 1.2 in China and 1.6 in the U.S. Plus, India has the youngest population on the planet, with over 60 percent under age 35. Although wealth might be unevenly spread, a growing working-age population spurs rapid economic growth. The World Bank expects India to outpace all other major economies this year, at a growth rate of over 6 percent, against just 4.3 percent for China. Another big story to look out for, a startling revelation on the rise of organized crime in Europe. Does it have ties to communist China? An Italian investigation reveals a shocking outlaw alliance between China and overseas mafias. Stay tuned for an in-depth expose diving into the secretive world of Chinese organized crime in Europe. That report and more coming up tomorrow on China in Focus. But coming up today, a ticking time bomb in the 21st century. The soaring risk of all-out war between China, the U.S. and its allies. And Taiwan is at the heart of it all. Most talks have focused on the rising risks and what could ignite conflict. But exactly what kind of war could we be on the brink of and how can the U.S. ensure a victory? We sat down with Ross Babbage, non-resident senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments in Washington, D.C., and author of the book, The Next Major War, Can the U.S. and its Allies Win Against China for Details? More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Risks of all-out war between China, the U.S., and its allies are shooting up, with tension over the future of Taiwan in the middle of it all. What lasting impacts would such a war inflict on the U.S. and its allies? And what would it take to win? 
We speak to Ross Babbage, non-resident senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments in Washington, D.C., and author of the book, The Next Major War, Can the U.S. and Its Allies Win Against China for a Closer Look? Ross Babbage, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So you recently wrote a book titled The Next Major War, Can the U.S. and Its Allies Win Against China? To begin, why are you optimistic about the actions from, say, the international community, but also the U.S. when it comes to pushing back against the Chinese regime? Well, I think what there's been a big shift in the last three or four years. Uh, the United States and its allies have really woken up uh, to the real challenge that China poses. And so what we're really seeing is... Um, Really, I think uh, the global democracies are coming together, uh, talking uh, really quite strongly about what what to do about this rise of uh, more authoritarianism, particularly in China. It's not only the allies here, it's also a range of countries that have never really been allied. Many from the non-aligned movement, we're seeing this particularly strongly in parts of Southeast Asia, where there's a number of countries, a classic one would be Vietnam, but also Indonesia, uh, the Philippines, of course, has been an ally for a long time. But a number of these countries are, are really, really concerned about the coercion that Beijing has attempted against them. And they really want to stand with the um, the, the major democracies uh, with us and um, try and prevent the situation deteriorating. What are the challenges that face the U.S., especially in the Indo-Pacific region? Look, I think the dominant challenge right now is, is the potential threat uh, from China to Taiwan, democratic Taiwan. Here's a democracy of 24 million people who really don't want very much to do with China. They're happy to sell China things, but they don't really want to be uh, associated with or involved with the Chinese Communist Party. Here they are being um, really threatened very directly. Uh, Xi Jinping has uh, promised his people that Taiwan will be integrated into China uh, with a uh, whatever it takes, basically. And, and he's not only sort of threatened this on numerous occasions and promised his, his, uh, his own people that he'll do it or that, that it will be done. Uh, he's actually said this um, without any real compunction. These are commercial enterprises, trial runs are producing military-related goods, um, which they've never had to produce before um, as part of a mobilization plan to test it out. Um, so th there's a lot of things going on here which are really rather strange and to give everyone who follows it very closely um, the clear impression that uh, Xi Jinping is fiercely determined uh, to integrate Taiwan. Uh, he's fiercely determined to proceed and do whatever it takes uh, within uh, the Chinese economy, with the military and so on. And um, although I don't think war is inevitable, uh, I do think it's a very serious risk. And I think this risk is now increasingly appreciated in the Western world. And it's something that we're seeing the United States and its allies and, and other friends uh, starting to take much more seriously and, and change their planning and preparations so that um, the democratic world can ride through any crisis that might arise. And Ross, to your point, it does seem like there is this focus on this threat because at the recent NATO summit, we saw leaders from Japan, South Korea, New Zealand, and Australia. They're quite rare. And it's kind of showing this pivot in a way to focus on the Indo-Pacific, not just, say, Russia. What do you make of this almost expansion of NATO? I think it's very interesting and, frankly, very welcome uh, because what I think um, the Europeans are saying is that if there's a major crisis in the Indo-Pacific, um, they're not immune. 
um, they're already taking cyber hits. They're already um, seeing um, uh, serious coercion. They're seeing Chinese intelligence agencies and other agencies of the Chinese government coercing uh, parts of their societies, and they're not amused. On top of that, of course, they've seen that um, countries like Japan, Australia, South Korea and others have rallied to help them and help Ukraine defend itself against Russian um, aggression. And they're really wanting to work with us uh, in a global sense uh, to be able to manage and counter where necessary the Chinese international behavior. And I think it's frankly very healthy and welcome. And expanding on that, it seems last year the West especially was taken quite by surprise when the Solomon Islands signed the secret pact with Beijing. There's growing concern there. And on that note, it seems with these overt measures from Beijing of a potential kinetic war over Taiwan, what do you expect action-wise from the U.S. and allies in that region? There's a problem which the Chinese have introduced into the region, and that is trying to gain influence by corrupting some of the leaderships, by, um, frankly, bribing and providing personal gain in a range of different ways. And when it comes public, what the Chinese are doing, there's sheer revulsion. There is a much, much stronger pushback and simply saying, we don't want anything really to do with this. Um, and um, I think, look, I'm, I'm quietly confident it's going to be, it's not going to be a smooth ride. There are going to be difference, differences of approach in some of these smaller states. Uh, but overall, I think the United States and its allies are working very closely together on, on these issues. And I think doing quite well, but I think we can all do better. Uh, and we're working hard to lift our game further and, and, uh, and work with the local states on the things that really worry them most. In view of all of that, how do you see communist China reacting? Would they actually think twice about invading Taiwan? I think the regime in Beijing is really concerned about the increasing cooperative and the depth of cooperation uh, in the, in the, between the Western allies. Of course, both South Korea and Japan have long-standing allies of the United States. And there's sort of what we're seeing now is is a networking. I think in Beijing, I think there's real concern. Uh, you hear, you see them sometimes talking about being surrounded, uh, being, uh, being, um, you know, really worried about a, uh, uh, if, if you like, being marginalised in the international community. Well, my attitude to that is, well, it's, they, they can't really blame anyone else but themselves. The Western world went out of its way to try and encourage China to come out and behave like a normal state. Um, you know, backing its uh, involvement in the World Trade Organization and all sorts of different international agencies and, and encouraging it in the hope and expect expectation that it would become a more democratic, more open society, the sort of society that the Western world and the democratic world could live with and, and work closely with. Well, what we've seen is that that is, was proved to be a false hope. And Ross, on the note of the Chinese regime almost getting marginalized here, it does seem in this time of uncertainty you are quite hopeful for the future. I am hopeful. Uh, and that is because um, the history of the major democracies, the United States preeminently, um, is that this is not the first time that we've faced really difficult problems and really problems that at times looked almost insurmountable. And the United States, anyone who really, you know, takes a bet against the United States, you know, achieving great things really needs to think again. The reality is the United States and its allies, when they get their act together, can be absolutely formidable. 
Ross Babbage, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus@ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.